All right, today we're going to read our whole passage together before then doubling back and having a sermon about it. So let's look at our Bibles today, starting in verse 27. You might remember last week, just as a reminder, that Jesus has instituted the Last Supper for his disciples. This is the night that Jesus will be betrayed. It says, And Jesus said to them, to his disciples, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, but, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. God, speak to us from this text. Thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I think this passage is a raw episode that we're able to peer into. It almost feels to me like it's too intimate for the human eye to behold. As if we shouldn't have access like this to the mind of Jesus, 
to the heart of God or to the failure of the disciples. But the cross in this passage is looming for Jesus. And the convergence of thousands of unseen elements are about to manifest themselves in real time. Judas's betrayal will become known. The disciples' fears will be acted upon. The Father's cup will be poured out. And the Son's mission will be accomplished. Everything will culminate on the cross and all will be exposed. And this passage begins to more clearly expose those all things. Now this passage, as we read, starts with Jesus announcing that his disciples will soon scatter from him. And he knew this from a quotation from Zechariah chapter 13. But still, though Jesus knew this, he had hope. That's why he said in verse 28, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He, he knew he had to be struck, according to Zechariah's prophecy, but he also knew that he would rise from the grave. But even though Jesus was talking about his death and sorrow and being struck, and even though Jesus talked about the hope of his resurrection, Peter, when he heard it, decided to make the conversation about Peter. <laughs> he assured Jesus that he'd never abandon Jesus. Not even death, he said, could stop him. But Jesus assured Peter right back and told him that he and all the others would deny him that very night. And after announcing that, Jesus took his disciples into a place called Gethsemane, as we read there in verse 32. Now, gardens did not exist inside of Jerusalem's walls, but some wealthy individuals constructed small gardens on the outskirts of town, little sanctuaries that they could go to to escape the hustle of the city. And those gardens, many of them were found on the Mount of Olives. And one of those wealthy individuals, a good person, seems to have donated their garden to Jesus and his men whenever they were in town for the various feasts. And when Jesus entered that garden, he told his disciples to wait while he went further into the garden for prayer. He took Peter and James and John with him. Mark tells us that it was then that Jesus began to be, verse 33, greatly distressed and troubled. The gravity of the cross rushed rushed upon Jesus in that moment in the garden. He confessed his distress even to his inner circle, telling them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Once alone, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this cup might pass from him. From his human vantage point, the coming hour seemed impossible. Now this prayer from Jesus was a prayer of total honesty, transparency, and vulnerability. All through Mark's gospel, Jesus is presented as the powerful son of God in control of every situation that he's ever been in. But here, he falls on the throne of his father. and He pleads for a reprieve. But... In prayer, Jesus is emboldened by his friendship with God. And he concludes, 
Yet not what I will, but what you will. Determination filled Jesus' soul. He would do the Father's will. He would execute the plan written down from eternity past. He would be slain for the sin of the world. After praying like that, Jesus came and found his disciples sleeping. He confronted Peter about their slumber because Peter, after all, was called to be their leader. Jesus, though, didn't call him Peter. You might have noticed in verse 37, he used instead Peter's old name, Simon, because Peter was acting like his old self. Jesus asked, could you not watch for one hour? And he went on to tell them to pray so that they might not enter into temptation. The inner man might have the best of intentions, such as standing with Jesus during his arrests and crucifixion. But the flesh, Jesus told them, is weak. Because of this, Jesus said, they should not sleep, but they should pray. By building up their spiritual strength, they could withstand the coming temptations. Now this repeated itself two more times. And each time, Jesus prayed in agony while the disciples blissfully slept. Finally, in verse 41, he told them, the hour has come. It was time for sinners to have their way with the Son of Man. And with that, as we read, Judas appeared with the conglomerate of the Sanhedrin's religious leaders. Chief priests, scribes, elders, all got together, hired a mob with swords and clubs to arrest the Holy Son of God. And Judas, worried that they might not recognize Jesus in the darkness, gave a sign. The one that I will kiss is the man. He approached Jesus, called him rabbi, and passionately kissed our Lord. And while the sluggish mob, the thuggish mob seized Jesus, Peter could stand it no longer. Mark doesn't mention Peter by name, perhaps to protect his identity from the authorities at the time he wrote his gospel, but John, who wrote years later, has no problem telling us that it was Peter that pulled out the sword and cut off the right ear of a man named Malchus, the servant of the high priest. It was total chaos there in the garden. Now Luke tells us that Jesus took a moment to heal Malchus's ear before asking the question, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? You know, they'd never arrested Jesus when he was in the public in public places like in the temple, but Jesus knew that the scripture had to be fulfilled, and it was. It says in verse 50 that they all left him and fled at his arrest. Now, the episode then ends with this odd description of a young man who followed Jesus to the garden in verse 51. Mark tells us that this man was clothed with only a linen cloth about his body, and in the skirmish, the mob seized him, but he wriggled free, and he left the garment in their hands and ran away naked, and that's how our story ends. It's an odd little foray into something new. Now, many theorize that this is actually an autobiographical note from Mark. The Last Supper might have taken place at young Mark's parents' house, at Mark's home. And it's very possible that after the meal was over with, Mark followed Jesus to the garden. Or 
Perhaps Mark hadn't originally gone with Jesus to the garden, but Judas had come to the house first to look for Jesus. And when Mark realized that Jesus was in danger because Judas was going to arrest him, he ran ahead of this mob to the garden to alert the Lord. Either way, Mark seems genuinely embarrassed that he abandoned Jesus just like all the other disciples did that night. Now the emphasis of this whole story that I've just recapped and retold to you seems obvious. The major point of this whole passage is the faithfulness of Jesus through the whole thing. He's the hero. He's awesome in this whole text. He's alone. He's betrayed. He's abandoned. He's distressed. He's troubled, but he does not waver. He stays with the plan. The secondary point seems meant to serve this first point, the magnificence of Jesus. You see, Jesus is presented as even greater because of the behavior of his disciples. Their failures only highlight his successes. Where their sin abounded, his grace abounded much more. When they saw themselves as strong, when they did not pray, And when they lashed out with swords in the garden, Jesus endured. So in this passage, we have two groups, a determined Jesus and ineffective disciples. And that's what we're going to look at for the remainder of this teaching, those two groups, the determined Jesus and the ineffective disciples. So let's look at both of them, starting with Jesus. Jesus, it says in Revelation 19, verse 10, is the centerpiece of Scripture. He's the hero of the Bible. All of it testifies of him. And clearly, he's the hero of this passage as well. But here's my question. How was Jesus so determined? How did he gain the strength he needed for this difficult journey? How did he get what he needed to climb Mount Calvary? All right, four things. First, Jesus found solace in the word of God. Zechariah 13, verse 7, had foretold what Jesus was about to endure. That's what he quoted to his disciples way back in verse 27. He said, you will fall away, all of you, because it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting from Zechariah. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, this short passage of scripture had convinced Jesus of two things, that his disciples would scatter from him and that his death would be from the Father. The Father would strike him. It's God speaking in Zechariah 13. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, oddly enough, this ended up comforting Jesus. He could remain confident that even though the father had to strike him, had to turn his face away from him, had to forsake him, this was all part of God's plan. Jesus had a work to accomplish. This was the plan of the triune God. And after hours of darkness and the full cup of God's judgment, Jesus would cry out, it is finished. He would complete the work of God, the plan of God. And I think the word comforted him about what he was going to endure. You see, the word of God can become a book of solace 
for you. And I don't mean the obviously encouraging portions. Of course, those sections can minister to your heart. But there is something, something beautiful about the chaotic and dark and tumultuous and judgmental portions of the Bible that can comfort you as well. You see, through it all, God is in control, moving things forward for his ultimate purpose. But second, Jesus hoped in the resurrection. Notice how immediately after he quoted the passage from Zechariah that predicted that his disciples would abandon him, Jesus said in verse 28, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This means that Jesus had predetermined to meet his followers on their home turf far from Jerusalem, back in the humble region of Galilee, after he rose from the dead. The gospel writers record lots of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Some happened in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem, but others took place in Galilee. And one in particular captured Paul the Apostle's attention years later. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or some have died. That's likely the big meeting in Galilee that Jesus was predicting right here. He foresaw this meeting in, in advance. And that meeting, that resurrection, it gave Jesus hope. You see, this confidence helped Jesus to endure his hour of trial. He knew that he would rise from the dead. You know, in Genesis, Abraham was convinced that God would raise Isaac from the dead to fulfill his promises. And Jesus was also convinced that he would rise. Nothing could stop him. He would rise and usher in resurrection life for all who believe in him. And resurrection hope can strengthen even the dimmest Christian soul. Because Jesus secured a resurrection for his people, we can have confidence today. Wrongs will be righted. True justice will be meted out. And immortality will come to these bodies of weakness and decay. His resurrection tomorrow can embolden us for life today. Third, though, Jesus endured aloneness in his mission. He seems in this whole passage to have wanted more than anything companionship with his friends and his Father in heaven on this night. Though they deny him, Jesus took his disciples to the secret place of prayer. He invited three of them further into the garden and he cried out to God, calling him Abba, Father, in verse 36. You see, Jesus was about to suffer alone, but he thirsted for closeness with others, his friends, and his God. It's fascinating to consider, though, how Jesus felt furthest from others and furthest from God when he was closest to God's will. You see, the closer the cross came, the more miserable Jesus here at this point felt. His disciples were distant from him in that garden and eventually fled from him once he was arrested there. And on the cross, well, he was doing 
the purpose of his father, he cried out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the whole time, Jesus was in the center of God's purpose, the center of God's will. He was living his best life. I say this because we live in an age that runs from discomfort and instead prioritizes and pursues personal happiness and fulfillment. Whatever brings us personal fulfillment must be pursued, we think. But the result is clear. More depression, more sadness, more brokenness than we know what to do with as a people. It doesn't pay to value the self over others. In the wake of the pursuit of happiness are hurt people, chaotic families, and unsatisfied individuals. But Jesus endured all that aloneness, the feelings of despair, so that he could remain in the current, carried along in the current, the river, the torrent of God's will. Sometimes God's plans hurt. And Jesus was game. There's one fourth thing I want you to see about Jesus from this passage. He resolved to carry out his purpose. He called it his cup. Now, some people have actually scoffed at Jesus and the way that he behaved in the Garden of Gethsemane because there have been many martyrs in the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, other philosophies, and even other religions throughout history that have seemingly behaved more bravely than Jesus did in this moment in the garden. They interpret Jesus's wavering in his prayer of desperation and sorrow as weakness in Christ. And compared to others, even secular figures who have died for what they believed in with bravery, people ridicule Jesus by comparison. But these mockers don't understand Jesus's cup. No one else has ever died as a representative for the entire human race. Adam had sinned and become the forefather of a race of sinners, but just as one man's sin brought death, so one man's death would bring sinless life. And no one else has ever had the weight of the sins of the world placed into his body. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus became sin for us while on the cross. I can't imagine the gruesomeness of that experience, and neither can you. You know, by way of comparison, I think about some of those modern jobs where police or social media companies are required to review the most debased online activity looking out for criminal actions. It, it, it must be gruesome to be exposed to such carnality. But Jesus... He subsumed the sin of the world into his body while on the cross. And no one else has ever felt the full rush of Satan's venom, but Jesus did in this garden. He had, Satan had tempted Jesus in the wilderness, but after he failed, you might remember in Luke 4, verse 13, it says that he left until an opportune time. I'm prone to think that this was the opportune moment. 
Satan feels present to me, lurking in the shadows, vexing our Lord. And no one else has ever had the eternal and unbroken love of the Father and the Spirit severed for a moment because of the alien presence of sin. You see, from eternity past, every time the Son turned to the Father, a rush of love was released and joy bubbled forth. Father, Spirit, and Son in perfect harmony and fellowship. The three, one. But with our sin beginning to be placed upon him, Jesus would be alone, separated as the Father struck him. This was the cup that Jesus was about to drink. And he'd begun to drink it there in the garden. And the intensity of this cup hit him that night. But in prayer, he prayed the pinnacle of all prayers. Yet not what I will, he said, but what you will. His prayers did not exist to conform the Father to his will, but to conform his will to the Father's. This is the best form of prayer. Total honesty, total communion, total vulnerability, but he landed on submission to God. And how could Jesus arrive at such a conclusion? Well, I think the secret is found right there in verse 36. He started his prayer like this, Abba, Father. The word Abba is a tender title that Jewish children would use to address their daddies. Even with a heightened sense of the doom that Jesus was about to enter, he was able to see God as his loving and gentle Papa. And Jesus parlayed this closeness with the Father into the most daring and vital act of human history. That's how Jesus was able to resolve to carry out his purpose. All right, that's a bit about the hero, Jesus. But let's conclude by looking a, a bit at the disciples. You know, they were ineffective in this passage. And the passage begins with them declaring that they would never deny Jesus and it ends with all of them, predictably, even the unnamed linenless dude, running away from Jesus. Now, their behavior was catastrophic. You know, in the book of James, James says that the doubting and faithless person is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. I can think of a million ways I'd rather have my life described than like a wave that is driven and tossed, floundering at the mercy of the elements. And, and though this passage is clearly centered on the majesty of Jesus, it does carry this minor tone of the failure of the disciples. Okay, so why were they so ineffective? Three things. First, they did not see themselves correctly. You know, when Jesus told them that they would scatter like sheep whose shepherd had been struck. They all denied it, starting with Peter. He was cocky about it, too. He said, even though they all fall away, verse 29, I will not. It's like he's saying, I can see why you'd say that these weak other guys might fall, but not me. They might run away. I could see it, but not me. And when Jesus guaranteed that his denial would be repeated three times before the morning came, Peter said, if I must die with you, 
I will not deny you. It's big talk. It's big talk. But we know how the story ends. We'll see it next week. Peter in a puddle of tears broken down over his failure. He would deny Jesus. Now we shouldn't really prosecute only Peter today because all of them said the same thing. And here's the deal. They just didn't see themselves correctly. The Bible says that anyone who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. You see, the man who cannot see his utter weakness without God is doomed. Peter was like a little boy imagining himself out on the battlefield winning crazy military victories. He just had no idea, though, how weak his own body and weak his own weaponry and weak his own soul were for the war that he was about to enter. He was totally ill-equipped. And his delusional self-view cost him dearly. Second, though, these disciples were not dependent upon God. This is what you would expect of someone who is delusional about the self. It's a natural outworking of undue self-confidence, of seeing yourself incorrectly. The reason that we know of their lack of dependence upon God is simple. They did not pray. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, they slept while Jesus prayed. Now, you've got to remember, by the way, this is not the first time that Jesus has invited Peter and James and John into a special moment with himself. The first time that this happened, Jesus raised a little girl back to life from the dead. The second time it happened, Jesus was transfigured, God's glory shone from within him, and Elijah and Moses visited Jesus from the land of the dead. You would think that when Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, hey, come apart with me by yourselves for a little while, they would stay awake because exciting, earth-shattering things seem to happen every time Jesus invites these three to a special moment. But as Jesus said in verse 38, their flesh was weak. They'd heard from Jesus that they'd be tempted to forsake him, but they didn't feel that they needed to pray for help to stay true to him. Instead, they slept when they should have prayed, and their prayerlessness was evidence that they were not dependent on God. But third, and finally, they did not understand the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. You see, when Judas came into the garden and the captors reached out to arrest Jesus, what did Peter do? He produced a sword and began hacking away. Now clearly, this guy is better with a fishing hook and a fishing net than he is with a sword because all he got was an ear. But Peter's attitude was the attitude the whole group had. In Luke 22, it says they debated about how many swords they should bring with him that night. And though Jesus could have produced thousands of angels to fight for him in the garden, he submitted to these, this crazy mob. These men didn't yet understand, though, the nature of the war that Jesus waged. When the disciples saw swords and clubs in the hands of Jesus' captors, they thought that they could win in Jesus' kingdom with swords of their own. But this is not the way of Christ's kingdom. One day, Jesus will take the world by force. His internal kingdom will be externally expressed. But right now, 
His kingdom is of an upside-down nature. The sword, which of course is necessary for governments and authorities and combating wickedness, is not the way to expand Christ's kingdom. The victory is for the humble, the meek, the mourner. We often think that the battle is external, though, in nature. We think political force can expand God's kingdom. We think powers in numbers will grant us victory. But Jesus' kingdom does not spread that way. In fact, historically, the periods of greatest power for the visible church have led to the periods of greatest decay in the church as well. But Jesus, for all of the failures of the disciples, he excelled where the disciples failed. He did see himself correctly. He was the shepherd who would be struck, and he felt weak in the face of this task. So he was dependent upon God and prayed to the Father in the garden, looking for strength to shore up his feelings of weakness. And he did understand the upside-down nature of the kingdom that he would establish through his cross, so he felt no need to fight the powers of his day. And it's this Jesus who graciously restored his disciples. They failed that night, but one day, all of these men outside of Judas would become elite warriors in Christ's forces. They would see themselves correctly. They, They would pray, and they would fight for this kingdom with entirely different and invisible and spiritual weapons, but not before Christ restored them, a restoration that he wants every single one of us to know. So in our passage, we see ourselves, but we see our hero, Jesus Christ.